As I walk back up here, I'm bringing the book again because I realized I held it up. I don't think I actually read the title. It's uh, Rediscovered Church by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman. Um, yeah, check that out. Commercial over. It's not really a commercial. We're not going to get any money out of it. It's really so that you guys would get a deeper understanding of why membership is important. All right. Okay, now on to the, the sermon. Um, Actually, another book that's in the library, in the, in the bookstore, is uh, a book by John Piper. It is uh, one of those books, I would say, it, it probably ranks up there as maybe the most singular influential book of my lifetime within the Christian arena, the book Desiring God. How many have read the Desiring God book or you know of it? Really good book, really foundational for so many things. Um, one of the things that, that Piper did, and he's held this uh, throughout all of his ministry, is kind of the, that around which most of his theology is crystallized. But it's the idea, you know, you hear it in the title, Desiring God. Um, Christians tend to think of desire as somehow a bad thing almost, you know. We, we like to think of Christianity as hard, difficult. And he's like, no, Christianity, our faith, should be glorious. It should be joyful. There's, there should be desire and desire which is fulfilled. But the trick of it is that the, that the highest desire and, and the highest satisfaction for us as believers is in the Lord. So it's desiring him. Uh, Piper coined the phrase, which, uh, which we're going to kind of pull this in a little bit today, but he coined this phrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So our greatest desire should be to bring him glory, but his greatest glory in us is when we are most satisfied in him. Now, I've tested that theory throughout the years, and, uh, you know, I, I bought into it. I thought, this sounds right, but I'm going to kind of tuck this in the back of my mind. And as I've read through the Scripture and preached through the Scriptures, I, I find this to be very, very close to the focus of, of, of the whole Scripture. Um, looking at this passage today in Colossians, you're going to see this. Christ is the substance. Christ is the one in whom all our sufficiency is to be found. And there's contentment in that. There's joy in that. Listen to these words. I'm backing up a lot uh, just to come into this on a run so that we pick up where we left off. But going back to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So we saw this last time. That should bring you kind of up in your thought to where we left off. What it's saying is, is the fullness of God is in Christ. You are in Christ because you are in Christ in whom the fullness of God dwells. Therefore, you have all of the provisions of that. You don't become God, uh, but you share in the deity in the sense that you share in his provisions. Remember last time we looked at four of those provisions. I'll just tick them off real quick for review. Uh, delivered from evil. True spiritual circumcision, to which belong the idea of belonging to the people of God, part of the covenant of God, uh, that you've been purified, that you've been given a new heart in that. Uh, thirdly, you were buried in baptism. And then, fourthly, raised from the dead. Now we're going to look at the last three. Uh, it was a little too long to do in one sermon. Seven points, uh, yeah, 
Couldn't, could not have done that in the time frame that I would uh, want to hold myself to. So let's look at these last three and how joyfully and sufficiently satisfied in Christ we ought to be. So the big idea, again, in Christ is the fullness of God. Here's the first provision for today. God made you alive with Christ. Now, how many think that sounds a lot like sort of where we were last time? That we've been made alive with Christ. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Um, last week it was in regard to baptism. That in baptism we died. But there, we willingly died. We were willingly, uh, anxiously, desirously dying to our old life of sin, which was to be left in the baptismal waters, left in the grave, and that was to be put behind us. So we were dying willingly. Now look at the text today, and you'll see a different metaphor, a different sense of the word death. Notice we shift from that good voluntary death death to the old self, to now looking at our old lives, B.C., who we were before Christ, and that what we were and who we were before was dead. We were dead. Look at this. And you who were dead, (laughs) you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So do you see the difference now about the uh, being alive? So, So this time... We're coming off of a death that's not a willing, voluntary death, but a death that is just who we were in our old lives, who we were in Adam, if you will. In Adam's fall sinned we all. We were, we were dead. This isn't the good dead. Last week was the good dead. This is the bad dead. It's like talking about different degrees of death. That's always funny to do, right? Everybody remembers Princess Bride. You know, just mostly, mostly dead. Some of you are older, and you might remember the munchkin coroner. You know, as coroner, I must aver, I thoroughly examined her, and she's not only merely dead, she's really most sincerely dead. So that's, that's when you're getting really super, super dead. So how dead were we is the question. How dead? I almost sang it, and then I pulled up. I thought, no. Nobody wants their pastor to sing like a munchkin from the pulpit. Agreed? Right? So first of all, we were dead in trespasses. We were dead in trespasses. That's not a good place to have been, but that's where we were. We had trespassed against the law of God. And this was true. If you go back to the whole argument of the book of Romans, which is very, very developed through the first several chapters of of the book of Romans, Paul makes it clear that the Jewish people were trespassers against God's law. They had his law from Sinai. They had the Mosaic Covenant, and yet they had offended that in every point. What about the Gentiles? They didn't have the Mosaic Law. No, but they had natural law. They had the law imprinted on their conscience, and they had transgressed that. And so that's how, when Paul gets to Romans 3.23, and we use it in evangelism, rightly so, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's true. It is true of every individual. But when Paul is using that argument, he's been talking about Jew and Gentile there. All, all have transgressed. All are transgressors. The other part of this death is the uncircumcision of our flesh. And you would say, well, that's probably talking about Gentiles, right? It would seem to talk about Gentiles. If you looked over at Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 1, Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sin which sounds just like this text does. 
But then when he goes on in verses 11 through 12, he very much sounds like he's talking about there about the Gentiles because he says that you were uncircumcised, that you're strangers of the covenant of Israel, that uh, you were apart from the promises without God, without hope in the, uh, the world, without God in the world. That's, that's probably speaking almost exclusively there of the Ephesians who are pagans. The thing is, here in Colossians, Paul could be speaking both to the Jew and to the Gentile when he talks about the uncircumcision of their flesh. Because it's not at all clear that he's necessarily meaning when he says the uncircumcision of your flesh. He may not just be talking about their bodies here. We know that Paul elsewhere will use the term flesh to speak of the sinful flesh. So it very well might be a kind of a Romans kind of argument here where he's tossing the Jew and the Gentile alike under sin. Both have trespassed and both are uncircumcised in the sinful flesh. In the sinful flesh. Not, not in the body in the case of the Jew, but in the sinful flesh. Either way, this is a very sincerely dead kind of proposition. But God, and this is the... This is the, the good part. God has made us alive in Christ. And this is part of the fullness that we've talked about that is ours. It's, it's a privilege. It's pro- provision that we are in union with Christ. Before we were in union with Adam, in Adam, we were trespassers. We were apart from God. Um, in Christ now, we have been made alive. The Father has drawn us into union with the Son, and how could we be any more alive than we, when we have been brought into Christ? Christ said He is the way and the truth and the life. If we have been grafted in, if we have been uh, made to be a branch in the vine, in that which is life, then life has come to us. Amen? I know this may seem morbid, but think about a transplant, right? Like a heart transplant. Where do they get that heart? Somebody who's died, yeah? They take that heart and they move it over into another body and that heart's not beating. From what I understand at the point, they they move it and they put it into the chest of the living person and they shock it and and the heart comes back to life. And as long as that body is alive then, then the heart within it will be alive. Like that, you and I, I know the analogy breaks down so don't stretch it too far, but we are like that which has come out of death and we've been brought into the living body of Christ and because we are in Him, not through any force of nature on on our own, but because we are in union with Christ, we are alive. Note that this is God's work, God the Father's work. Do you see that? God made alive with Him, it says. He brought you into His Son, who he raised from the dead. It says, but God being rich in mercy, this is from Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So God, God's love for us was to bring us into Christ. And then being in Christ little word I in that little preposition, being in union in Christ, he has now raised us with Christ. Do you see that? In Christ and with Christ. And those are kind of hard prepositions to separate by very much. I mean, they kind of would get at the same truth. 
But I want to give you an illustration for this for a moment, okay? Um, you've heard, how many have heard of collateral damage and you know what collateral damage is? Right? For those of you who are old enough to remember the Iraq war, there was a lot of talk about, well, how much collateral damage will, they, will, will there be? You know, in old styles of warfare, World War II style, man, you, know, you use saturation bombing and all that. There's a lot of collateral damage. We've gotten better through the years. We you know, pinpoint accuracy on some of these bombs and the whole desire. Well, let's not have as many people. What, what we're saying is we don't want non-combatant innocent people to be blown up by a bomb that's meant to hit a military target, right? That's collateral damage. When you came into Christ, you were brought into the one whom God raised from the dead. And when God raised him from the dead, when God exerted that power, it made the atom bomb look like a sneeze. That amount of power, that, that, like a particle you know, being, being blown into, into many pieces. When God raised Jesus from the dead, you could just sort of picture this spiritual mushroom cloud. And with, with, that, with that split atom, all of, all of the elements around it, all of, every bit of earth and, and, and every bit of air is just being sucked into that and brought with it up into the sky. When Christ was raised from the dead, God spiritually brought you in and raised you with him. And that is big. You are alive. You are alive today because God's fullness dwells in Christ, who is life, and you have been brought into him, and with him you've been raised from the dead. Do you see the fullness of of God in Christ? Do you see what is yours? Test that theory again about about desiring God. God is most glorified when we are satisfied in Him. When you really get a hold of this, when that truth becomes absolutely part of your DNA and you understand it and you get the ramifications of it, how would we ever get the full ramifications? But as you start to delve in and understand that, life eternal, you've been swept up into that. Your, Your collateral resurrection... Your collateral grace, the grace of God in Christ, you've been brought into that. Secondly, God has forgiven your trespasses in Christ. This comes uh, right at the end of verse 13. Let's look at that. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Now, we just got through talking about trespasses, didn't we? That We were all dead in our trespasses. And now what we're told is that we are forgiven of those. How could God unite sinners to his son, his holy, precious son, and thereby somehow bring them into fellowship with himself? How could he do that given our trespasses? What's the, what's the mechanism of that by which he solves the sin problem? Well, he says he cancels our debt. That doesn't necessarily answer it either, but it's the next step in the progression. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I remember a a favorite chorus back in the 1970s. Most of you, not alive back then, but uh, those old old folk among us. Do do any of you remember uh, the old chorus, he paid a debt he did not owe? I owed a debt 
I could not pay. I see, yeah, like, okay, I got one person. I see that hand, two people. All right, very good. So a couple old, old timers. It was a good song. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. And back, as most things in the 1970s, it kind of sounded a little bit like a McDonald's jingle, but it was good theology. It was good theology. Now, sin, forgiveness, and debt are kind of closely associated. Um, so let's, let's talk about this wiping away of our debt. You know, when Peter, when Peter wanted to know how often he should forgive his brother, so we're operating in the area not of debt but sin, right, forgiveness, that's when Jesus broke out the parable about the unjust steward, the one that, that the unforgiving steward. You, or you remember here, the unforgiving servant, I should say. You, how many remember that parable? Yeah, he wouldn't forgive his fellow servant, you know, the nickel or dime that he owed him. But he could in no way pay his master, the person that, or, or whoever it was he borrowed the money. There was not even, not even close. Do you remember how much he owed his, his uh, debtor? Do you remember that? 10,000 talents. You go, wow, that sounds expensive. Well, let me tell you how expensive that is. Do you know what one talent was equivalent to? You might have it in your study Bible in the notes. Yeah, they say that one talent was roughly the wages of a common worker if they saved every dime for 20 years. Multiply that times 10,000. 10,000. If that guy had lived 200,000 years he, and saved every dime, he would have only then had enough money to have ever. He could never have paid that back in his lifetime. What do we owe God? What, what do we owe God? What is the debt that we owe him? We owe him perfect submission. Every transgression, every trespass against a holy God is an infinite sin. And we have sinned upon sin upon sin. We couldn't pay God off if we had an infinite number of lifetimes. Paul describes this debt in ominous terms. If, if you haven't seen the, how ominous it is yet, he, uh, uh, he says that um, it was a debt um, which would be the ordinances of God and our failure to, you know, shortfall and our indebtedness on that. And he describes it as against us. And the ESV doesn't bring this out, but he actually describes it as hostile to us. Hostile to us. So a written record of your, everything you've done, uh, you know, every, all your sin written out, all because you've fallen short of God's glory and, and you've broken his law, and this is hostile and against you. Now, how do you escape that? How could anyone escape an insurmountable, legally binding document written against them? The text tells us. It says God set it aside. God wiped it away. The, the verb in the text is actually a, a word um, that, that means wash away. Like, almost like if you think about people that used to wash checks. Any of you bankers know what, what that's all about? Yeah, they used to get the ink and wipe it. Somehow they'd, they'd, they'd get it out of there and then they'd write in whatever number they wanted. That's kind of the word here. I mean, I don't think they had check washing back then, but it, you get the idea. It was washed clean. It was taken away. In fact, the mechanism, he says he took it away and he nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to, 
our impossible debt against God was set aside, wiped, cleared off of the books because it was nailed to the cross of God's dear Son. You, know, you think about crucifixion, and it was typical that they would write the charges of the crime that the person had been found guilty of, and they would write that over on top of the cross. What, was, what did it say on Jesus' cross? Do you remember? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. They said, don't write that. Pilate's guy, yeah, I'm going to write what I want to write. King of the Jews. That was his uh, crime against Rome, you know, in a nutshell, is that he was supposedly a king other than Caesar and all that. And it was trumped up and all the rest of it. But in, real, in spiritual terms, what was actually written on the cross was a record of your sins against God. The sum total of every trespass, of all that you've done, of all your guilt that was written and recorded against you was nailed there on the cross. Does that put things in a light where, where you can celebrate at all? <laughs> you know, it, d- does, does that not bring joy to your heart? It, it is all through the fullness of God in Christ and you in Christ now become the one who is receiving all of that, all of that provision, including your debts being canceled. It's all the cross and nothing more. Here's the last provision, the very last, for last week and this week. Um, God has humiliated our enemies in Christ. God has humiliated our enemies in Christ. How many love to see your enemies humiliated? None of you? You're too good for that, right? Kansas City beat, what was, what was the name of that team? I forgot now. Oh, the Eagles, thank you. you. Oh, you are just dead on the money there. Wow. Yeah, and you were all like Mr. Spock, like, it was a good game. It just happened that our team came out on top. Live long and prosper, Eagles. Yeah, is that kind of how you took it? How many were, like, jumping up and down and going, in your face, and, you know, sending text messages to your Eagles fans and, and just, like, making them waller in it? Uh, you know, you're too good for that? Okay, all right, some of you are too good for that. But in real life, but in real life, if life and death are, are, are on the line, if this is a battle between good and evil, then I think it's actually okay to want to see the enemy humiliated, to, to, to see such a complete and total victory over them. I mean, when, when Luke Skywalker, because this is real life, when Luke Skywalker... You know, he's flying his X-wing down there, you know, and it's a last chance, last ditch ever. And he fires the two proton torpedoes, and they go down the exhaust chute, and then the Death Star blows up. I mean, all the Wookiees, at least, are like, you know, whatever. What, that's terrible Wookiee impersonation. But, you know, everybody's happy. The whole movie ends with this great celebration because, because the plans of Darth Vader and the Emperor have been utterly and totally put to shame and ruined. And now we're not even talking about something that's fictional. We're not talking about something that's sports, which, you know, is superfluous. Right, guys? We admit it. Sports is superfluous. Yes? Amen? Okay, in the grand scheme, in the cosmic scheme uh, of things, it, it's, it's a bunch of, you know, over-muscular, over over, overpaid, you know, men playing a, a child's game. That's, that's, that's what sports is. So... It can't mean that much. But what we're talking about, we're talking about Christ overcoming rulers and authorities, disarming them, stripping them of everything. The imagery here is kind of interesting because 
It's something which Paul may have witnessed. Like, you'd have to go back and, and, and check some dates. Um, but there was, this, there was this practice in Rome that when a Roman general defeated his enemies, you've probably heard this, that they would bring them back to Rome. Probably not all of them. They probably killed 90% of them back in the field. But then they would bring their prisoners, their, you know, the real prizes of war, the generals and their, you know, and their officers and others, and they would drag them through the streets of Rome, having stripped them. Like they were almost naked. They had no armament left, nothing to defend themselves. They were bound, and they were paraded through the streets of Rome in shame as, as having lost to them. Paul tells us that God did this with our enemies, that he disarmed rulers and authorities. He stripped them. He stripped them. He paraded them naked, as it were, de- defanged and declawed. And back in Rome, most of those guys, when they finished with the nice little parade they were given, they were slaughtered. They were slaughtered. Can you imagine the humiliation of that? You've lost in battle. You've been drugged all the way to Rome. You've been paraded through the streets. Common people, the children and old women are just yelling epithets at you and, and everyone's celebrating your humiliation. And that's the last thing you know before you're put to death. That's, hum- that's humiliating. The, fe- the effectual work of the cross in forgiving our trespasses, in setting aside our debt, was the complete and total humiliation and shame against our enemies. And who were those enemies? Who are the enemies of our soul? Clearly, this is speaking in a spiritual terms. It's not talking about flesh and blood, is it? It's talking about principalities and, and powers. It's talking about the devil and his, and his angels and, and so on and so forth. We didn't owe the debt to the devil. Sometimes people incorrectly think that the debt that we owed was owed to Satan. It wasn't. The debt was owed to God. God's holiness had to be satisfied. But Satan is the tempter, isn't he? And not only is Satan the tempter, but after he tempts us and we fall, then Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Look what it says in Revelation. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. How good is that, that your adversary, the devil, the one who goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, he has been utterly brought to shame along with all of his minions. And then there's another layer to it, which maybe you're already onto this and you're like, well, isn't he talking about something else as well here, Pastor Jay? You are correct, absolutely. What what have we been talking about in the book of Colossians? Elemental spirits. Remember the elemental spirits? We just got through reading about them at the beginning here in that text. So elemental spirits, uh, we know they're connected on the one hand to various sort of uh, typical religious ideas of do this, don't do that, don't touch this, don't touch that, uh, so on and so forth. So there's that, but also behind that, when we're going over that, you'll remember that there were dark powers and principalities that are brought to bear. So what does that tell you? It tells you that even the animating spirits of false religions and cults and human philosophies and all of those have been defeated at the cross. And there's an implication of that. If they're defeated, why would we submit ourselves to those things? 
If those have been defeated, you know, why? And, and that's where it's going to go. I'll just give you a little look ahead without going too far. But the next word out of Paul's mouth or off of his pen is going to be therefore. Therefore. And he's going to bring it right back to the false teachers and, what, and, and that we are not obligated. Paul will conclude that if all of this is so, then we are free of, the, of, of that which the false teachers are pushing. Somebody comes along and says, hey, Christian, you know, yeah, Christ, sure, okay, okay, but. When you see that little, that little word, but, that ought to tell you a lot. Right? I just need you to walk across some hot coals for me. Like the really spiritual Christians can walk across hot coals. I just totally made that one up because it seems ridiculous. But it, it's always something ridiculous, isn't it? It's always Christ plus this practice, Christ plus this rule, Christ, you know, do this, uh, don't eat that, whatever the case might be. Just do that, and then you'll be a good Christian. Don't submit yourselves to that, your sufficiency. Where's your sufficiency in this text? Christ alone, the cross alone. That is where our debts were nailed. That is where our trespasses were forgiven. It is in Christ. Brothers and sisters, do not be taken captive by fast-talking salespeople who, who want to layer on new requirements, whatever they might be. And we're going to be looking at what they were in, in Paul's day. What we need to see today is just the pure, sheer joy and contentment that is ours through the cross of Christ. You don't need what certain people are peddling you. You don't need visions you don't need complex religiosity and forms. You need Christ. And having him is sufficient. Having him is enough. Having him means that you have come into life. Do you remember in the, in the story of the prodigal son when he comes back and what does his father say? Do you remember his father's excited? He's like, okay, here's what I want you to do. And he starts barking orders to the servants. He's like, okay, go, go, kill the fatted calf, prepare it, bring it as a meal. You know, get, get a robe, get a ring, get new shoes. Because what? My son who was dead is now alive. Back in relationship, back at home, back where he belongs, alive to me. And that's what God has done in Christ, in his fullness. Celebrate that. Not a fictional work. It's, 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 not, it's not cinema, it's not some, you know, very forgettable game that gets played one day and forgotten the next. This is your salvation, eternally, forever and ever. Maybe next time you feel, do you ever feel discouraged? I mean, I never feel discouraged because I'm a pastor. Pastors don't get discouraged. We're always right up here. Yeah. No, I thought I'd get you to laugh at that. Um, yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, I, even now, you know, I, I am kind of cruising in toward the, the end of my, of my career, if you will, uh, as a, at least a full-time pastor. And, you know, you just start hearing little voices in your head that tell you, well, maybe you just maybe you didn't really accomplish anything there. Maybe nothing good happened. You know, you just, whatever it might be, you, you hear those things. And uh, next time you're feeling discouraged about what you've accomplished, what you've done, could I just maybe write this down in, you know, somewhere, like next time I feel that way, you know, in three hours from now, or whenever that is, come back to this text and look at what it says. It's so clear, isn't it? God's fullness was in Christ, and you have his filling in you 
That fullness is in you. And look at all of these provisions that are yours. It's all in Christ, and Christ is yours. Unless, of course, you don't have Christ. I should hasten to say that. If you do, if you do not have Christ, if you n- have never turned, repented, believed on him, then, then come experience what it is we're talking about. There are many things in this world that are held out to you, and, and you're always promised the same lame thing, which is this is going to finally be it. You're seeking happiness. You want something. You desire something. Then you get it. What do you find out? It's not ultimately fulfilling. Oh, there's happiness. There's moments. There's you know, pleasure. There's, there's, but, but, but it's never utterly fulfilling, is it? You need Christ. In Christ is the fullness of God. We just hold them out to you. We ask you, to look, look to Christ. Look to Christ today and be saved. Take joy in him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to you that you loved us, that you were so merciful to us, that you included us in your son, that you brought us into him in whom your fullness dwells, and you took away our trespasses. You forgave us of those. You nailed them to the cross permanently, completely. And we are so grateful to that, Lord. We are so grateful to you for that. Lord, help us just to grow in our understanding of what we have in Christ. Thank you for the many short-lived pleasures of this life. And they are abundant. They're many, and and we experience them in relationships, in the sun coming up in the morning, in the rain falling. There are many, many good gifts you give us, Lord, but the greatest gift of all is your Son, and we thank you for all the provisions that we have in him. Help us to really see that. Lord, lift us out out of times of despondency or depression when we start to just look at ourselves. Turn our eyes back to Christ. Turn us to that sufficiency. May you be utterly glorified because of how satisfied we are in him. Lord, we pray that right now your gospel would fall on receptive soil, the soil of a heart that's ready to receive it. Lord, that you would cause that that seed of the gospel, your word, to take root in that heart today, that such a one being overcome with, with the goodness and mercy and grace held out to them, that they would turn from their sin and put their trust right now in Christ and so have all of your fullness and all of your provision. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.